0: you uh, just came in. We are going to be partaking of communion a little bit later today, so if you want to grab those elements, uh, again, the bucket back there. If that bucket's empty, we have some uh, right up here. Ever since uh, I, uh, I was a kid, I have been fascinated uh, by, um, by things that have multiple purposes, things that are very, very efficient. Right, things that double as other things. Um, I think the first thing that, uh, that I coveted as a child was my brother was given a pen uh, to write with and it had a digital clock in it. And I thought that that was the coolest thing. It was just like, you could write and you could tell time. It was amazing. Um I my dad had a uh, had a survival knife. It was sort of modeled after like the Rambo movies and some of you probably don't know what those are. Uh but the the Rambo knife had a compass in it and so you could you could find your way but then there were matches and fish hooks inside the handle. Like it it's like it's all you need, right? With that knife, you could survive anything, I think. And uh like those are uh, um Swiss Army knives. I mean, is there anything more efficient? besides a fanny pack anything more efficient than a swiss army knife i mean it's got everything like you can cut stuff with it it's got little scissors like if you get you know a, a sliver there's tweezers there's a toothpick in there right there's a toothpick in there. And, and there's a corkscrew. Now, as a kid, I didn't know what a corkscrew was. My, my parents uh, drank wine out of a box. So uh, I didn't understand what that was for. But, but there, there's these, these tools of, of ultimate like efficiency, right? And my, my thing as a kid, the thing that I really, really wanted was a calculator watch. The calculator watch right and I had this fantasy as a kid that the more popular kids would come to me and be like Justin will you help me with this math problem and I'd be like yeah lay it on me and I like, five yeah plus five ten yeah and you know and I would I would be that kid who had the calculator watch and I could I could help people right with the calculator wash. It's, it was super cool. Like, it was very, very efficient. Um, I love efficient things. That's why I love, I love tiny houses. I would love to live in a tiny house. Like, you, you take this, this space, and you have to maximize every cubic feet of it, and that means that things have to double for other things. Uh, Melissa and I, we got away about a month ago to Hocking Hills, and we, we stayed in a, in a tiny house for three nights, and I loved it. And, and just like everything, had these multiple purposes. Like, you walk in, and you're like, there's a toilet, Right? Put the lid down. It's a seat. Put a seat in the shower. Put a table here. Boom! Dining room, right? I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, we had a, uh, our house in Oregon. had um, It was just a, a one and a half story house. So our, our bedrooms upstairs, they just had little stub walls, and then the ceiling was, you know, the inside of the vaulted roof, right? And uh, uh, it was an old house, and it had no insulation in the stub walls, and so I decided that I was gonna cut a hole in the opening of where the stub wall was. It was just empty space back there, and I was gonna, I was gonna insulate it. And, uh, and I remember um, I, I'm, I'm doing that, and I'm, I'm coming out of, of the, the crawl space there. That There's nothing back there, and I'm looking at our room, and our room was really small, and my wife had her dresser over there, and my dresser was here, and I'm beginning to size it up. I'm like, I, if I cut the legs off this dresser and I open that hole a little bit bigger, I could shove this dresser right into the wall. And I did, and I, and I trimmed it out. And all of a sudden, I don't know how well, like Ikea goes with 1940s cottage, but it, it worked. And, and it was one of the things that sold their house. But, but see, I love built-ins, right? You have space that's not being used and you, you make it usable and you free up other space. Built-ins are great. Now, So here's, here's the point of, of all of this. I'm talking about efficiency, right? I think that for a lot of us as Christians, we hear these words that we're supposed to be about God's purposes, right? We talk about this definition of church, that church is the people of God saved by the work of Jesus for his purposes in the world. And we as Christians, we look at these these purposes in the world, and I think we have this idea that, that God is giving us this gigantic piece of furniture to move into our little tiny house. Like here's this big, Bulky, you know, thing that takes up all of all of our already crowded space, already uh, just just full of activity and life. Like we, we look at our lives, and our lives are already full. They're already cramped. They're already just every space and nook and cranny of our lives is taken up, especially our time. And it feels like God is saying, "Okay, now be about my purpose." Right, do the things that I've made you to do. And it's like, I don't, even, I don't even get to the end of my to-do list now. And God's saying is, now add this to everything. And, and, and what, if, what if, though, we were to, to look at life, what if that these purposes in the world, God's purposes for us to live out in the world, what if these weren't add-ons? What if these were built-ins? What if God had already designed life in such a way that there are rhythms and there are built-in activities you're already doing that can be done with a different purpose that points back to God. Uh, Something done with a different purpose that allows you to live out this new identity. So if you would, turn with me to Colossians chapter three. While you're turning there, uh, recap a little bit. Last week, we looked at lies that... um, tie our hands, so to speak. They, they steal away our time, and they, they tie our hands and prevent us from being about God's purposes. And, and the lie, basically, is this. Your identity comes from what you do. Your identity comes from what you do. We talked about how when you meet somebody new, what do you generally talk about, right? What do you do for a living? We talk about your biological family or your nuclear family, and we talk about your hobbies, Right? Because those are the things that we look to to define our identity, right? My work, right? Whether I'm an engineer or I'm a lawyer or I'm a pastor, what I'm trained to do and what I do to make a living, that defines me. And that's the way that, that I, I, those are the things that I look to to validate my life, those are the things that I that I look to to so I, I I go after my boss's approval or I go after my coworker's approval I go after a bigger salary or bigger cha- pay- paycheck but, but all of these things in order to at the end of the day say this this is what I'm about this is who I am or it's or it's your family Right? You're, who you're married to. You get married to, to, to this person. And you hope that they will compliment you. Like they'll, They will make up for your weaknesses. They will make up for your deficiencies. They will make you a better person. In another way, they're validating your existence. Your children. You're looking at their academics and you're looking at their, their music ability or you're looking at their athletic ability and you're wanting your children to be successful in part because your success is found in their success. They're, they're, they're your little image bearers. They are there for, for, to validate your identity to, to some degree. And so we look at these things, and, and the reality is, is so we pour our life, all of our life, into our work. We pour all of our life into our, our, our family or, or into our hobbies, right? We wanna, we wanna tell people what we do as a hobby because that will make us more interesting to people. We pour all of our time into these things, and at the end of the day, we don't have time for anything else. And what if God is stepping back and he's saying, you know what? You don't have to create an identity for yourself. I've given you an identity. You're already validated. You're already accepted. I look at you and I see myself. Like you already have an identity in the name and the identity belongs to Jesus. What if we have an identity that is given to me by what Jesus has already done for me and it's possible to live that identity in natural and I would even say efficient ways, even efficient ways. So we're in uh, Colossians chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 12 through 17 together, and uh, and I want to talk, before we get there, I want to talk about what we see in verses 1 through 11, so a quick overview of what you would read in in verses 1 through 11. The Apostle Paul comes out, and he says, put off the old self. Put off the old self. He is talking about identity. Put off the old self. And by putting off the old way of being, you're going to put off the old way of doing. Put off the old being. He says, look, if you are a Christian, if you are in Christ, then you have been changed by him. If you by faith have have accepted who he is, that he is the son of God, taken on flesh, if you've accepted what he's done on your behalf, that he has come and he has lived a life that you couldn't possibly live in order to pay a debt you couldn't possibly repay, that he has died in your place and that the father by the power of the spirit raised him from the dead. And right now he's seated at the right hand of the father. And spiritually speaking, you're with him. If you by faith have believed in what has been done for you, then you are a different person. You're different. You're not what you used to be. And since you're a different person, you should act like it, is what Paul's saying. Put off the old self. Put on the new self. The old self is dead. The old self was crucified. The old self is buried in a tomb. The old self is no longer. So the old way of doing should also be no longer. If your old self was dead, then you shouldn't speak the way that you used to speak. If your old self is dead, you shouldn't think the way that you used to speak, think or behave the way that you used to behave. This new humanity is different. So read with me, Colossians 3, beginning in verse 12. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I want to break this down a little bit. The first thing that he says in there is he talks about the fact that we have been chosen by God. Those are not my words. Those are the Apostle Paul's words. You have been chosen by God. And I want you to think about those words. If, if you hear those words that, that I have been chosen by God, and if that leads you to any other feeling other than humility, you don't understand it. When you hear the words that the God of the universe, this high, holy, perfect God, that He has chosen you, and that leads you to some sort of sense of arrogance or pride, you don't understand who God is, and you don't understand who you are in light of Him. It should lead us to humility. That that God, He would choose me. The second thing He says there is, you're holy. You're holy. How did how did you become holy? You're holy, he says. How did this come about? It, 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 this holiness, it, it means that you're different. It means that you're set apart. It means you're spotless. You're, you're blameless. You're perfect. You're holy. How did you become holy? Because the Son of God comes, and he takes on flesh, and he lives the life that you couldn't live, a holy life. And at the cross, he says, here, here's my life on your behalf. My life given for you. My life for yours. And he takes your sin and he absorbs the wrath of God and he absorbs the punishment that you deserve in order to make you holy. The next thing he says is you're beloved. You're beloved. God looks at you and you're cherished in his eyes. Jesus tells this story of a a man who finds a treasure buried in a field and he says that the man he goes and he sells everything he has in order to buy that field so that he can have that treasure. You see, that's a story of God and us. God's the one who sold everything. God's the one who gave up everything. God sent his son to die for us in order to ransom us to him. We're treasured. We're cherished. We're beloved. Not because we're lovely. Not because we're great. Not because we're special. But because of what Jesus has done for us. See, this completely changes us. Completely changes us. And it's because of this that we become family. Ephesians 1, 5, and 6 says this, In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. You see, this gospel story, it declares that we have been chosen by the Father. We have been made holy and beloved because of the work of the Son. We have become part of this family. And this family is something, this is an identity that we need to own. But what if living out of this identity wasn't an add-on to life? What if you could live out of this identity in very natural, efficient ways that God has already built in to life? We'll get to that. Look now with me at what he says next. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. Forgiveness is at the heart of this. Forgiveness is at the heart of reconciliation. We read in 2 Corinthians 5.18, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. See, this is what it means to be a missionary. Jesus says that that he was sent to us, and so he's sending us. But when he was sent to us, what did he do? He reconciled us back to God the Father. He takes the blame, he stands in the way, he absorbs the wrath, and God is able to accept us back to him. He reconciles us to God the Father. And so he's given us this ministry of reconciliation, whereby which people can be forgiven of their sin and made right before God again. We have this identity. We are missionaries. It is what we are. But how can we live out that identity through natural and and even efficient means, means that are already built in to life? And we'll come back to that. Look with me at verse 14. Verse 14. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Put on love. What does it mean to love? What is the example of love that we have? 1 John 3.16, by this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Jesus said that he came not to be served, but to serve. The ultimate picture of the servant is the one who lays down his life and he's motivated to lay down his life because of one thing, love, love. And it's by this love that we have been made servants. This is an identity that we need to own. But is there a way to live out this identity in a way that is efficient and and easy, that is built into life you already have instead of seeing it as an add-on and something extra that you need to do? Now look at verse 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let me ask you, uh, when you hear the call to live out these identities, right? when you hear that because of, of... of God's adoption of you that to live out this identity as family, and when you hear because of, of Christ's service for you that you have to serve out of this identity, when, when you hear this ministry of reconciliation that you're, you're called to minister or be on mission in the same way, does that fill you with peace? Does that fill you with peace? Or does that fill you with distress? Does that, does that feel, fill you with, this, with a sense of unity with other believers? Or do you look at other believers and you say, like, they have the ability to do that, but I just don't have the capacity. I'm not actually one of them. I'm just faking it. I'm not really a part of these people. Does it fill you with unity, or does it, does it make you feel isolated? When you hear about this, this, this mission and, and being about God's purposes in the world, are you grateful? Do you find yourself feeling grateful, or do you find yourself feeling obligation, burden, How do these things make you feel? Do you feel weighted down? Do you feel crushed? By what this means for us? You see, according to the Apostle Paul... that when we understand who we are and we put on this new being, that, that the peace of Christ could rule in our hearts and, and, and we, we understand what it means to be in one body and, and we, we have this gratitude, like the, the natural outpouring of, of this new identity that we have because of Jesus is peace, unity, and gratitude. That's what we should be experiencing. And if we're not experiencing that, why not? Here's why not because our faith is still something that we're doing and it's not something that we're being. I think the greatest hurdle for Christians in their spiritual walk and their growth is to go from doing Christianity to actually being a Christian. Let me try to illustrate the difference for you. What if I approached marriage and being a husband as many people approach being a Christian? What that would look like is that when Melissa is in my presence, I'm tender to her. When, when, when Melissa and I, we're in the same room, then um, I, I, I'm loving and I'm affectionate. I'm, I'm listening and, and, and there's appropriate uh, touch and the, the, there's intimacy there. But the minute that Melissa leaves the room, I'm no longer a husband. And so I act in those same ways toward anybody and everybody else around me. That would be called unfaithful, right? That would be called infidelity right the reality is is that there are some people who because they walk into this room on a sunday morning all of a sudden they're christian all of a sudden they want to worship god and they want to be affectionate toward him and they want to to sing his praises and they want to hear from his word and read from his word and engage but but the minute they walk out the door it's over it's over what if, what if I approach being a father, as many people approach being a Christian? When my sons are in the room, I'm, I'm teaching them. You know, I'm, I'm trying to show them how to, to be godly men and to raise them up in the way that we sh- they should go, and I provide for them and care for them. But the moment they're off to school, I take all of the things that I would have given to them and I give them to anybody and everybody else. We would call that unfaithful as a parent. Infidelity in a way. And yet... Here's what Christians do. They'll walk into a house church on a Wednesday or a Thursday night, and they'll spend two hours with one another, and they'll engage in all this family type of activity and and fellowship and, and encouragement. But the minute they leave, they've forgotten about all of those people. You see, an identity goes beyond time and space. I'm a husband, whether I'm in the same room with Melissa or whether I'm on the opposite side of the globe. That's what I am. I'm a father regardless of whether it's 12 a.m. or 12 p.m. Time and space do not affect your identity. If you are a Christian, time and space doesn't affect your identity. You're just as much a Christian tomorrow morning as you are right now in this room. And see, we have this identity that's been given to us. And to be Christian means to be family, adopted sons and daughters of God, brothers and sisters of one another. It means to be servant. We are not greater than our Master Jesus who served, who got down on his hands and feet, and hands and knees, and he washed his disciples' feet. We're not greater than him. And like him, we are missionaries. We are sent to proclaim a message of reconciliation to God. This is what we are all the time, everywhere. So how then do we live this identity out? I think that the many of us, we hear this, like, I I don't know how, I don't have time, I don't have space. Is it because you're giving your life away to affirming an identity that you already have? What if you were able to see that there are ways to live out this identity in natural, efficient means that are already built into your life? Look with me at verse 15. I'm sorry, verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Is that your reality? Do you find yourself so full of the gospel? Like, so full, like, enriched by the gospel that everything that comes out of your mouth is proclaiming the excellencies of Jesus Christ. Do you find yourself so full Of this truth. That it comes like you can't help but sing. (laughs) You ever experienced that? Is this who we are? And I think that really, I think if we're going to be honest, I'd say most of the time we're not. So why not? Why not? Verse 17 again, this is how Paul closes out this section. He says, And whatever you do, in word or deed, whatever you do, Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. What if everything you did in the name of the Lord Jesus made an impact? What if everything was a way of living out your missionary servant family identities? See, when we look at Scripture, we see that there are rhythms built into life. For those of you who are going through uh, the Saturate Handbook, uh, these are our house church leaders or potential house church leaders. And, and, and one of the quotes from the Saturated Handbook is, is, is this. Uh, the entire principle of everyday rhythm involves prayerfully considering things you already do and infusing the gospel and our new identity into those things. Look at the everyday rhythms of your life and see how they could be seen in a different light and infused with a different So this morning and next week, we're going to look at a total of six identities, or six rhythms, I'm sorry. Six rhythms that, uh, that help us embrace how to live out missional identities, family identities, servant identities, in natural, efficient ways. We're going to get practical right now. So if we look at, at, the, at Scripture, we look at the Old Testament and the New Testament, we see some of these rhythms all over the place. Here's the first one, Eating. You know, uh, God, uh, he made us to eat, but eating is, is more than about filling our bellies with fuel. Eating is, is about more than, than just uh, sustenance. Eating is about engaging and identifying with God. You go back to the garden, and here Adam and Eve, and they're created in, in, in this perfect garden, and literally food is hanging from the trees. They have to provide, provide none of this for themselves. God provides it for them right? And there's two trees in particular. One that they are welcome to eat, which will allow them to live forever in unity and in and harmony and, and in relationship with God. The other one they're not allowed to eat. And actually by abstaining from it, they take part in a form of worship where they say, you're God, Your Lord, you're over me. I'll submit to you and obey you by not eating this. Well, if you know the story, you know that they didn't obey. But food, from the very beginning, has has had so much more to do than just sustenance. Um, We see it as as a gift to God, right? Abel gives a better gift to God through food than Cain. Cain kills him for it. We see that food is involved in, in covenant relationships. God establishes relationships with key characters in the Old Testament. Noah, and food is a part of that covenant. Abram, food is used as a part of making that covenant. We see it in blessing. This this high priest Melchizedek blesses Abraham, and it's food that's used a part of that. The atonement of sins is, is food offerings and all sorts of other offerings that are used in the temple. Like, food is everywhere, and it's so much more than just about sustenance. We'll come back to that. Celebrating. Do you know that God invented celebration? God gave party to people right? You remember the Beastie Boys song? You got to fight for your right to party? You don't have to fight for it. God invented it and gave it to you. Celebration. Uh, We see seven celebrations in the Old Testament. It starts with Passover, which points to Jesus when a Passover lamb is sacrificed, which provides the, the Israelites a way out of slavery. The next is the Feast of Unleavened Bread, seven days without ye- eating bread with yeast in it. That points to the sinlessness of Jesus Christ. Uh, the third one after that is, um, let me catch up to my notes here, uh, the fe- or Feast of first fruits. So when there's harvest time comes along, the, the first of the harvest is given to God in gratitude. Jesus is the first fruits born of the dead, the first one. Um, we see this in uh, the, the the feast around Pentecost. Pentecost it was a, a way of celebrating God giving his law, a law which Jesus filled completely and perfectly. We see this in um, the feast of uh, of uh, trumpets, which starts off the new year. It's followed by the, the day of atonement, where all the sins of Israel are wiped away, and there's a feast and a party that Uh, comes in after that, and lastly, there is the the Feast of Tabernacles, a day where they go, and they actually purpose, actually, for a week. They live in huts and tents to remind themselves of their wandering in Egypt, but also to point forward to a place that God is going to prepare for them. Jesus said that, too. See, there's all these parties and celebrations throughout the Old Testament, and it's, it's more than just having fun. It's a way of remembering who God is, the, the third one we're going to look at this morning is rest. We see rest throughout the Old Testament. Sabbath, one day a week, rest. One day a week, find that you don't have to do. God's already done for you. Rest is seen in a Sabbath year where they don't plant crops and, and they, they're trusting in God to provide their provision for that year. It's seen in the year of, year of Jubilee when, when slaves were set free and they're, they find rest from debt rest is a regular part of of, of life for them. And it's more than just about um, resting your body so that you can get back to work. Lastly, creation or or work. Work the way that God intended it to be. Adam and Eve were intended to subdue the earth. That's another way of saying, here's this garden that God's made for you. The rest of the earth is wilderness. Go out and make the rest of the world like this garden. Go subdue it. Go bring it, like, make it flourish. Make it thrive. This is God's work for you to do. And it wasn't seen as, as bad. It's only until sin enters the picture that work becomes toilsome, laborsome, difficult. We see work in, in the Old Testament, in, in Exodus. God contrasts the work that, that the Egyptians make them do by baking bricks with the work that God has given them to do in making the tabernacle. They're baking these bricks for, for, for what? Places of worship for the Egyptian gods, but they're making these objects of worship for God's tabernacle for Him to come and dwell. And one work is holy and sacred. Work that is creative and purposeful. We see this in the, the building of the temple. When they come back into uh, to, to the land after they've been tarried off, they rebuild walls and they rebuild the temple again. But throughout Without the Old Testament, you see these, these four regular rhythms, and then they continue on to the New Testament, and they're most embodied by Jesus himself. What does Luke say about him? We talked about this a few weeks ago. In, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is always eating. He's always eating. Either he's going to a meal, he's coming from a meal, or he's at a meal. He's always eating, and he's eating with tax collectors and sinners. He's eating, he's celebrating. He participated in the feasts of the Israelites, but he also participated in in other parties, weddings. I mean, he, he produces the best wine at a wedding that runs out. Celebrations. He's involved in, in rest. You see him. He's the only one who actually knows how to do Sabbath. He's constantly being criticized by the Pharisees that he's not doing Sabbath right, or his disciples aren't doing Sabbath right. But he's the only one that's got it right. He's, he's taking time away to be with God and, and lean into him and find rest and solitude in him. But lastly, we see him working. He's healing people. He's putting his hands on people. He's raising the dead. He's feeding people. He's about this work, but it's more than work. It's work that points to who God is and what he's done. You see, it's work with purpose. All of these are rhythms, natural things embedded into your lives that can be turned into something Higher. We see this in the the work of the apostles see this in the writing of the apostles and we see it at the end of end of it all in revelation you read the book of revelation you know what we're eating we're celebrating we're resting and yes there is divine work that has purpose in the kingdom of heaven you see humans were made we have these rhythms built into our lives they're not added they're not extra they're already there. So what if you could look at all of these things and see them with a missional purpose or a servant purpose or a family purpose in mind? Let me ask you this. When's the last time you shared a meal with people who weren't just your biological family or extended family, and it wasn't with your house church during a regular scheduled house church time? When's the last time you shared a meal with a larger group of people. When was the last time? Think about it this way: Over the course of the last year, how many of those meals have you had? How many? Think about this: uh, The last time you threw a party. When was the last time you threw a party? Birthday party, anniversary party, anything. When was the last time you threw a party? Over the course of the last year, how many parties have you thrown? Flip that, up. when's the last time you were invited to a party? Is there any reason that why you wouldn't be invited to a party? Why your unbelieving friends, neighbors, or coworkers wouldn't invite you? When's the last time you were invited to a party? When's the last time you took rest? And I mean you took 24 hours and you didn't answer emails, and you didn't follow up with work, you didn't work on the house, you didn't go shopping, you didn't clean anything, you just rested for 24 whole hours. When's the last time you did that? Over the course of this last year, how many times have you done that? How about, uh, how about worked for God's glory and not yours? Where you went to work, not to earn a paycheck, Not to please your boss, not to get a pat on the back from your coworkers, or you you went and you put your hands to work cleaning up something in some thankless way, working for for somebody who would who would never know that you even did it? When's the last time you put your hands to work for God's glory, expecting no glory in return for it? When's the last time you did that? How many times over the course of this last year have you done that? See, here's the reality. I want to read this one more time. Uh, Colossians 3.17. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. See, what if your meals were a way of reminding people that you gather around the table of who Jesus is? You're going to eat anyway, right? Right? But the reality is, is for so many of us, you're having a hard enough time to get your family around the table, let alone anybody outside of it. Throw a party. You know, there's two big uh, parties that, that people in Greene County celebrate. You know what the, the first one is? Labor Day. Why? Anybody? It was invented in Cedarville, right? Labor Day. Can, can you see a natural connection between throwing a Labor Day party and the gospel? Can you think about that? Throwing a Labor Day party and say, do you know why we get to rest? Because Jesus did it all. Or can you see that natural connection? How about Independence Day is the other big one. Can you see a natural connection between celebrating Independence Day and what we have in Jesus Christ? Do you see what I'm saying? Like, can you use a party, a natural rhythm of life, invite people in and point them to the truth of the gospel? And resting resting I mean do, do you understand like because of Jesus you have the best boss because of Jesus you have the best retirement plan do you understand that kingdom of heaven because of Jesus you have the best wages see what you've earned is the wages of sin which is death but because of Jesus now you have eternal life you have the best wages you see all that Jesus has done and accomplished for you you, it means that you can rest you don't have to prove yourself we should be the most rested people on the planet when it comes to work our work should be the most effective it should be the most fruitful it should produce the most you know why because it's not done for our glory it's done for his you see like, what if we took life and we say, I'm going to do this in the name of Jesus. I'm going to be grateful for it. I'm not going to add on mission. I'm not going to add on service. I'm not going to add on this family thing. I'm just going to live out these identities through the life that it's already here. It's already built in. Christians, seriously, what would the world see if they looked at the church and they found us this way? If they found us rested and celebratory, And producing beautiful things, and eating delicious food for His glory. Like what? What would the world discover? I think that would be the best apologetic ever, don't you? I think the world around us is tired. Why are we just? Why are we just as tired as the world? I want to transition uh, as we close. Are partaking of communion together. And, and I, I want you guys to see that within communion, we're actually going to reenact four of these rhythms that we talked about this morning. So if you're here this morning and you say, I, I'm not a, a Christian, I, I, I was maybe drug here, or I'm just checking all this out, I'm really glad that you're here. And, uh, and I would ask you to observe. You know, as, as Christians, when we partake of this, this symbolic act, we actually make a really loud proclamation of what we believe and who we are. And so observe, like, watch us. And, and for those of you who are Christians, realize you're being watched. But it's not just here, it's everywhere we go. The whole world is watching. And if we're proclaiming things like we should be the most rested and celebratory and all this, the world is watching. And imagine if if what they found was exactly what Christ intended that they find in us. So we're going to walk through this this morning. First, in communion, we are eating something. It's a little tiny wafer, and it's a little bit of juice, but these things actually point to the body and blood of Jesus. Jesus said that my body is true food, and my blood is true drink. And he didn't intend for us to be cannibals, but what that is pointing to is that his sacrifice on the cross is the thing that would give us true life and forevermore. So, eating is involved, celebrating is involved. Do you think of communion as as celebratory? I mean, the reality is, is sin is no more for you. Sin doesn't have the last word for you, death doesn't have the last word for you. You're freed from those things. Isn't that a reason to celebrate? Thirdly, rest. This means rest. This means that Jesus has done all the work. Jesus has supplied the identity. It means you get to rest in what he's done for you. It means rest. Lastly, it means creation. It means new work, but work with purpose. You've been made a new creation. You've been made this new person, this new identity, and out of that, you get to take part in the redemption of the world. Isn't that amazing that the God of the universe, he's done all the work and yet he says, I want to invite you into what I'm doing. There's this new work that we get to participate. All of these things are embodied in this simple little cracker symbolized in this little bit of juice. Jesus on the night before he was killed, he, he took bread and he broke it. He ripped it apart and he handed it to his disciples. says, this is my body. It's given for you. he said, this is is a cup that symbolizes my blood. It's poured out for you. So what I want to do now is I want to put a verse up on the screen. And I'm not going to lead you to partaking the elements. I'm going to ask you to do that on your own after you've pondered these things. We look at mission. We look at family and servant. We look at God's purposes for us in the world. And we, many of us, are bogged down by this picture of it as being burdensome. Hear the words of Jesus to you the, the, the thing that we see in the, the Colossians passages over and over again is this word gratitude here is the God of the universe saying what I have for you is not burdensome, it's light do you feel gratitude for that? spend some time meditating on this verse and when you're ready partake of the bread and the cup and in a moment the band will come back and play